Okay, students, this is our very first lecture on Dante's The Divine Comedy. We're going to talk about the background to it as well as the structure to it. You see a picture up here. Just one thing I'll say about this picture, you don't need to know how to analyze it quite yet, but we will be doing a lot of an art analysis in this class. You see up here a representation of the world as Dante knew it at the time that he knew it. You see Dante in the red here. You see the woman that he loved, Beatrice. I'll talk a little bit about his sort of love. It was a weird sort of love. It was not a passionate physical love like Paris for Helen, but more a courtly love. He liked to write beautiful letters about her. and That was a medieval way of loving. People would, men generally, would at court see some beautiful lady, and then they would never get to know them. They would just maintain an image of them, like one of Plato's forms of the beautiful. And then they would write sonnets and beautiful poems to that person for all time. On the one hand, you might think that's weird, because you don't know the person at all, nor do you ever really get to know them. But on the other hand, you might say that's sort of smart, because the better you get to know somebody, the less they seem like an angel, and the more they seem like a normal person. And so, it's sort of an interesting idea. In any case, that's Dante floating there, that's Beatrice, this is a pope, likely uh, Peter, who was the first pope, uh, supposedly somebody who betrayed Jesus three times, if you know anything about the apostles in the New Testament. This is an image of Florence. That weird-looking flower that you've seen a million times, like this, with the straight bit and the two looping bits, which is symmetrical, is called a fleur-de-lis. It is the symbol of Florence. It's a flower. It is a lily as a flower. A lily is actually a funereal flower, by the way. It's a white flower. You give it at funerals because the idea is that though somebody is dead, they are reborn. And uh, that's a pretty idea. It's very sad when people die. On top of this Florentine place, you see what looks to be something like a devil. And the devil seems to be dropping money into the hands of, oof, that's the Pope with that super crown. And these are a bunch of cardinals behind him. The Pope is the leader of the Catholic Church, which was in power during the Middle Ages, especially uh, in Florence and the uh, areas around it, in the Italian peninsula. And the cardinals are essentially like the captains of the Roman Catholic Guard. Uh, yeah, you might say they're like the generals. Um, and so we can see that what the situation here at Dante's time is that the church has been corrupted by wealth. The world is being corrupted. The world is in a bad state. And so, let's get to know this. Alright, a few things you need to know. This poem that we are going to be reading, and why don't you write down these names, just so that you know them, is divided into three parts. These three parts are called canticles. The three canticles of the Divine Comedy are the Inferno, at the bottom here, it looks like an upside-down funnel. That's because supposedly when Satan fell from heaven, he fell head first and displaced the matter from the earth that he fell through, and it created a funnel. And then, in fact, you notice that purgatory looks like the opposite of the inferno. Instead of an upside-down funnel, it looks like a right-side-up one. Well, that's supposed to be the matter that exploded up into the air in an Archimedean displacement sort of way when Satan fell and created a mountain. And we will go up that mountain. Uh, one small difference between, there are many differences between the inferno and the purgatorio, but um, in the inferno there will be no time and no hope. People who go there are damned eternally. They will for all time be punished in the way they are punished. It will never, ever change. That is not the case in Purgatorio. 
Those people, souls at this point, because they are dead, will be punished. They will be working towards something. And so if I were to ask you a funny essay question, which is, is high school more like the Inferno or the Purgatorio, what would you say? Yeah, that, so, yeah, the first thing somebody says to say be funny is Inferno. But you have to think a little farther. You have to think a little closer about it. Why would you say Purgatorio rather than Inferno? Because you can either come out really well or come out really bad. That's close. The first part is correct. The second part is not quite correct, yes? Because you're working Because you're actually going to get through it. That's the idea. Because you're actually going to get through it. As punishing as it can be, you will get through it. And frankly speaking, since it's a public institution, even if you don't get through it, we'll throw you out at some point. I think there's actually a, I don't think you're allowed to be in high school past a certain age. I think that might be a state requirement. But in Georgia, where I grew up, which is very different from California, I think you couldn't be past 21. Um, but you can get your uh, GED. can get your GED. In any case, the last place we'll go is Paradise, Paradiso. That is the third canticle, the third part of Dante's Divine Comedy. So... Keep this in mind. Though it is one whole poem, it is subdivided into three poems. Okay, cool. Let's learn a little bit about Dante. When was he born? He was born in the 13th century in 1265. That means that we are making a huge jump from last year. Last year, Homer, he lived in the 8th century BC. Virg or Plato, who you then read? 4th century. And uh, I think some of the 5th century, too. He was born in the 5th century. Um, Virgil, 1st century B.C. So we're jumping almost 13 centuries ahead. We're skipping the entire biblical time, the Hellenistic time we didn't really talk about last year, the time of the German barbarians destroying Rome and the rise of the Byzantines. We don't really see much of that. And so, basically, we are, like you with the Iliad last year, dropping you in the middle of the Middle Ages. And we'll talk some about that. In any case, more about Dante. Born May 1265. His family was essentially a middle class family. He was not uh, overly wealthy. He was not rich. He was not royal. He was mostly just a brilliant, talented young man of decent education. So fairly, fairly middle of the road there. Maybe a little bit above middle of the road. And he probably spent a year at the University of Bologna... Uh, and as part of his education, these are two terms you need to know. He studied the trivium, which looks like tri, like triangle, three, via, ways. Well, those are three manners of study. They are grammar, rhetoric, and logic. That is what children would have studied um, during Dante's time. And then he also studied the quadrivium, which was a medieval addition to the classical curriculum. So classical people say if you lived during the time of Virgil, would study rhetoric, which is the art of persuasive speaking, logic, which is the art of analytical thinking or argumentative thinking, and you would also study grammar, which is the art of constructing language. Quadrivium, which you will learn about much more during the Paradiso, is um, the study of astronomy, the stars, very useful if you live in a time that doesn't have satellite navigation, which is every time that's ever existed until the last, uh, what, 70 years or so, something like that, I'm not sure when our GPS first came out. But definitely it wasn't until very recently. They would study music. Music is the art of arranging notes in the same way that grammar is the art of arranging language. And then they would study also geometry and arithmetic. They got a little bit more advanced with their math. Um, and so, I just wanted to let you know that. 
a little bit more. Okay, let's start with this. Dante, married. He was married to a woman named Gemma Donati. And in fact, we will, uh, we will see some of her family members throughout the, the Divine Comedy. Something I want you to keep in mind is that though he was married to someone named Gemma Donati, she is not the woman who he is in love with during the Divine Comedy. In fact, you'll hear very little about his actual wife and very much more about this courtly love, this ghostly lover named Beatrice. Very good. But his greatest love was Beatrice, the one about whom he writes. You might say that he has sort of a contrast between his worldly lover, who can give him a family and children, and his ghostly lover, who can inspire him to his highest art. Perhaps all artists have such a distinction in their lives. Something important to know for the quiz on Friday. Beatrice, her last name is Portinari. Notice those vowels at the end of these Italian names. Technically, if you wanted to be, if you wanted to pronounce her name in an Italian way, her name is Beatrice Portinari. And her name, in fact, means thrice blessed. You see that tree, that tris at the end of her name. Trice, like thrice. And beatus, like the Beatitudes from the New Testament, means to be happy or blessed. Because being happy is being blessed. Note that Dante met her when he was nine years old, and she was eight years old. Sadly for Dante, she married another man in 1287. And then even sadder, she died in 1290 at the age of 25. He will write the Divine Comedy during the course of 1308 to 1321, which means that when he writes, she's already been dead for at least 18 years. So he's had a lot of time to think about her and to imagine the sort of person she would have become. And interestingly enough, if somebody dies young, you can really imagine that they would become a great person, which is both sad and beautiful, I would say. Sad because they don't get that life nor the opportunity to live it, but also beautiful because, well, often... We imagine things to be better than they even are. Perhaps you even know that in your own life. How many times have you imagined you were about to go to, like, say, a party or an amusement park or sporting event or a musical concert, and the anticipation was even better than the event itself? Probably everybody at some point. You're like, it's going to be the best time ever, and then you get there, you have to wait in a line, you get gum on your shoe, somebody spills some nasty-smelling liquid on you, and then the girl or guy that you thought was going to be there that was the whole reason you went there isn't there. And you're like, oh man, dang. Next time Beatrice will be there. In any case, let's keep moving. You don't need to know, you don't need to write this. You, we know this. Beatrice was essentially Dante's angel. That's just a metaphorical way of speaking. You cannot touch her because this was the age of courtly love, as I mentioned. Know that term, courtly love. Know that, know that the most important thing you need to know about courtly love is that it was a literary expression of love. You used words, or you wrote something about someone, like a poem. You did not touch them. And so if I ask whether Helen in Paris, uh, from the Iliad, exemplified courtly love, what would you say? What would you say? Did Paris and Helen exemplify courtly love? Who says yes? Let's just take a poll really quickly. Who says no? Y'all are right. Exactly. Because there was a physical element to their love. Because they absconded with each other. Exactly right. All right. Good. Good, 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 good. 
No. Okay. Okay. I will. I will put it like this. Okay. We're going to go through this very quickly, so let's write fast. Dante's world. I've talked a little bit about this, but you need to understand the divisions of it. When you understand the divisions of it, you will understand the world itself better. It was really divided into at least three parts. The world of politics. He was himself an actor. Uh, he had a one-year appointment when as a Podesta, which is essentially a city council member. It was a very honored position in Florence when he was exiled. The world of theology, he's mired in Catholic theology. In fact, he was a member, he was a Franciscan oblate, which means a secular member of a monastic order. Monastic orders are monks who follow a certain religion in a certain way. In fact, the Franciscans, who the word Frank or Francis or San Francisco, San Francisco means St. Francis, by the way, took a vow of poverty so that they could be free of worldly possessions and the desire for worldly things. Um, very interesting. And then, of course, the world of learning. He knew his Virgil. He knew his Greek mythology. He knows a ton about contemporary politics. You'll see lots of that inside of the Divine Comedy. You'll hear lots of Italian names and him talking a whole bunch of smack about them all the time. You'll see him always, often, talking about Christian concepts because he was himself a Catholic Christian. And you'll see him throughout the entirety of the Divine Comedy, making references back to the Roman, uh, the Greco-Roman world. In fact, he will make an invocation to a muse during the Paradiso, which is very interesting because he's going to heaven, so you would imagine him to invoke someone like God, or Mary, or Jesus, or say the Lord's Prayer, which eventually he does, but he invokes a Greco-Roman God. I'm starving. Which is very weird. Which is very weird. All right. His comedy utilizes all three. You don't need to say that. The Middle Ages was dominated by a struggle between. Okay, this is a simplified way to say this, but this is true. The papacy, that's the church. The papal see is where the pope sits. It's like papa. And in fact, I think it has the same etymology. The idea is that the pope is the father of the church in the same way that king is a father of a nation. And so there is a conflict here between the papacy and the so-called empire. The conflict is this. As I told you yesterday, the Pope has secular power. He has landed holdings, he has uh, seated armies, and he has wealth. Well, what does the king have? Well, land, holdings, people that he rules, and armies. Well, it sounds a lot like the church and the state have become the same sort of thing. Well, when one state has something that another state has, they often enter into what with each other? War or conflict, that's quite right. Which is a big problem for Dante, because according to him, and this is not just according to him, the church and the state need to have some sort of harmony between themselves. They have to have some sort of balance. In fact, even in our state, though we say that there is no religion in school, we do provide a place for religion. We do say that you have freedom of religion, I believe. Yes, that is in the First Amendment, alongside the freedom to gather and the freedom of speech. Um... And so, there needs to be a harmonious balance. There needs to not be a conflict. There is a conflict here. Over and over again, you're going to see that there are problems in Dante's world. There are problems in Dante's world. There are problems in Dante's world. It's a bad, as I've said, prosaically, it's a bad time. All right, good. The papacy. One thing I want you to know about it is, we still have a pope. And if you're Catholic, technically, that is your king. 
And he lives in the Vatican, which is its own sovereign nation within the sovereign nation of Rome. Anybody ever been to the Vatican? That is where the very famous works of Michelangelo are, and the Sistine Chapel, one of the most beautiful places on earth. On earth. The empire, well, I just want you to write down this name for now. Constantine the First. There was an idea that Dante had that was based on a forgery, but he didn't know that, nor did anybody in the Middle Ages, that this guy Constantine in 325 A.D., he was a Roman emperor who converted to Christianity, gave a piece of the empire, I believe it was the whole western half, to the church. Because he became a Christian. And he said, I want the church that I believe in to have land. And that seemed like a good thing to him. And in fact, we will see him in heaven amongst the just rulers. But the problem with that for Dante is that the second that the church acquired earthly power, well, what sort of people are going to go work for the church? People who are holy and want to give up possessions? Or people who want power and want to acquire possessions? If some place has power, what sort of people will go there? The people who want what? Power. That's right. And so Dante sees a big problem with this would-be kind gesture. In fact, you may know this quote. Have any of you ever heard the expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? Do you know what that means? Does anybody know what that means? Can anybody explain that? Yes? That's right. That's right. I imagine this is like the eight-year-old who wants to make breakfast for mom. The idea is good, but then the execution is a giant mess. Who then and then who has to clean it up? Mom. Right. Or the eight-year-old. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. We hope. We hope. Okay, good, 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 good. Okay. There's a little bit more there. I'm gonna skip through that really quickly. I don't really care about telling that to you. Okay. This is what I want us to focus on. Good. I want you to think about, we have like one minute left, so I want you to write the right part of this slide fast. You need to know these three numbers. These are going to figure prominently on the quiz on Friday. So, Dante. Three is a symbol of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity is the idea behind the Catholic Christian God that Dante believes in. Remember, it's one God, one usia, or substance, as the Greeks would say, but with three different perspectives, or three different faces. One is God the Father, one is God the Son, and one is the Holy Spirit, often represented as a dove, which was the symbol of love in the Greco-Roman religion. So three is going to be a big-time number. In fact, you see that the poem is split into three, three canticles, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. You see that each paragraph, called stanzas in poetry, are split into three lines called tercets. You see that the rhyme itself is called terza rima. That means triple rhyme because each ending word of each line, except for the very first two, rhymes three times. It's ABA, BCB, CDC, DCD, which means all those letters which correspond with each other rhyme with each other. So you hear that all the B's rhyme together, the C's rhyme together, the D's rhyme together, um, and well, that's what we have time for today.